0: Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm speaking today with my friend and colleague, Malika Dutt, for the Real Change podcast series. Malika is a leading innovator in storytelling and culture change, bringing together the power of ancient wisdom and spiritual practices with contemporary technologies and tools for creative connection and transformation. She combines her creative advocacy for a thriving world with a coaching, speaking, and strategy practice that connects planet, people, and purpose. Malika is the founder of global human rights organization Breakthrough and led the group as its president and CEO for 17 years. She has served as the program officer for human rights and social justice at the Ford Foundation's New Delhi office. She was associate director of the Center for Women's Global Leadership at Rutgers University. Malika draws from the richness of multiple spiritual traditions having trained in energy medicine, health coaching, yoga, and Zen Buddhism. For many years, we've been co-faculty at an annual Institute on Women's Leadership at the Omega Institute, and I have learned a tremendous amount from her. So welcome to the Meta Hour, Malika.
1: Thank you, Sharon. Such a delight to be having this conversation with you. I'm excited.
0: It's really great to get together in in any form, and we're both recording remotely today from our respective quarantine homes. Are you in New York City?
1: I'm not. I'm actually on Chappaquiddick in Martha's Vineyard right now, and really enjoying the ocean and some reprieve from the city, which I love very much, but it's nice to be here.
0: I love the city very much, too. I left on March 14th, and... I thought I was coming up here, you know, I have a home here and a retreat center, which of course is closed. And I thought I was coming up for two weeks. I realized I still have my winter boots. I don't have like any summer clothes, you know, and it's been since March fourteenth, And um, I'm hoping to get back uh, at some point.
1: It's quite a time that we're in, Sharon, quite a time.
0: I mean, whoever could have imagined you know, the last time we were together, it's just like, it's unimaginable. And here we are. So this this recording is part of a larger series of conversations on the Meta Hour centered around the themes in my book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And it's very funny because when uh, we got several um, JPEGs of the cover of the book and um, the audio version of the book, they had the subtitle backwards. It kept saying mindfulness to heal the world and ourselves. And I looked at it and I thought, is that better? You know, but it's really mindfulness to heal ourselves and the world, which is uh, actually significant. So I've, as you, you know, long looked at the role of qualities of awareness and love and compassion in in changing the world and how the world changes us as we make those efforts. And, and this book is the culmination of, of that investigation. And I was so delighted to be able to feature many things I have learned from you in the book. And um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you came to your path of practice and, and your path of work.
1: Well, Sharon, you were a very instrumental uh, figure and person in my journey to this current path. I don't know if you remember when we met many years ago at the Netroots Conference, and we did (laughs) a panel together, which was called Love, Compassion, and Other Forms of Activism. And... um, you know, I joined that conversation at the invitation of Carla Goldstein, who is the president of Omega, and I didn't know you, and I didn't know Leslie Salmon-Jones, who's with Afroflow Yoga then either, and I was very much a part of the human rights world, had spent many, many decades working on various forms of social justice, from gender-based violence to racial justice to immigrant rights to lgbtq plus rights and in a in a little bit of a search you know feeling that that work was very important and yet i was looking for something searching for something and when i met all of you i really began to be introduced to the world of contemplative practices of work within, uh, work within the self as opposed to work within the world, which is where my focus of attention had been. That encounter and then through that sort of some of the other uh, doors that started to open in my life really took me into a deep, deep journey into self. And it's it's been a challenging one. In some ways, I would say that my rage at the world, the trauma that I had experienced in my family, as well as the trauma that I experienced in the work that I did around challenging different forms of violence, um, led me to constantly try and change the world. And what I came to realize and understand from all of you was how important it was to bring some of that attention and focus within. So, um, you know, I embarked on a, a pretty deep journey, I would say over the last eight to nine years that has had me doing some deep inner work, deep excavation, And now I feel like I'm in a place where I'm integrating the work within and the work outside, and bringing all those different fragments of myself together.
0: It's really fantastic because, you know, the journey goes in both directions. I know so many people, and I was like that, certainly myself, where my own personal healing was the motivation for my. You know, I went to India at the age of eighteen and. I'm a New Yorker. I'd never even been to California before, and there I was in india and which I loved and uh you know but it was it was also overwhelming because my own suffering was so uh extreme, and you know in those days, even though I was practicing in a context where the um the ritual was to repeat, you know I'm practicing for the sake of all sentient beings or my practices not just for myself alone. And really, honestly, I didn't care about anybody else, you know, because my own pain was, was pretty strong. And as that began healing, then I could look around in a different way. Um, And I see that pattern for many, many people. And, and your journey was almost the opposite. You were very in tune with others and, and wanting to serve and caring and uh, wanting to make change um that would help people and and uh it, it was later on it sounds like you know more of a journey inward
1: so you know Sharon the, the it the the deep connections between us are so yeah. many i came to the united states at eight, 18 oh, how to fabulous. study here right so i came to the united states to go to college to Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts, and um, I came from you know a context where I grew up in a joint family where the boys were going to inherit everything. The whole idea was that I was supposed to get married and then you know go to quote unquote my own family. And just watching the gender patterns within my own family had me in such a sense of outrage. And I swore as a kid that I was never going to be. My mother, or uh, like any of the other women in my family. And so, getting a scholarship to come to Mount Holyoke was um, part of this path that I chose to walk. So, I arrived in the United States in 1980 and dropped into this language of feminism, you know, started to read all of these different feminist writers began to understand the politics of colonialism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had studied all of that when I was in India, but there was something about studying it outside of the country that created a bigger political framework. And so there I was suddenly with language, with context, with vocabulary, to explain uh, many of the things that made me angry growing up. And I dove into political activism right from the get-go. You know, I became involved in protesting the U.S. involvement in Central America, uh, divestment from South Africa, uh, you know, take back the night marches, challenging sexual assault on campus demanding that more people of color faculty be hired at Mount William College. Like it was just like this immersion into a political context um, at a time in my own development that was so incredibly exciting for me. Um, And it was exactly what I needed at that time. I think that the other irony piece and the deep connections between us is that I was so angry with Hinduism and I was so angry with Indian religion and spiritual practices and how incredibly patriarchal they were and all of the ways in which they oppressed women that I didn't want to have anything to do with my own spiritual Mm -hmm. religious heritage or lineage. And then it sort of became, I don't want to have anything to do with any spiritual lineage because as far as I was concerned, they were all tools of the patriarchy.
0: Well, there's some truth. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I always treasured about Buddhism was, um, well, first of all, I shouldn't even call it Buddhism because that's that's a later coinage. It's the teachings of the Buddha, um, since it's not supposed to be an ism, but um, was the injunction, which I found breathtaking, that you can find out the truth for yourself and don't just take on someone else's dogma or belief and Um, I wrote this book, Faith, many years ago, uh, I think 18 years ago now. And uh, in it, I described this dialogue where uh, one of my colleagues, Sylvia Borstein, was talking to a woman in the audience of this, this class we were teaching. And the woman was very upset about what she had read about the Buddha's treatment of women which in one sense was quite revolutionary in that he allowed women to come into the order of monastics and on the other hand he had certain rules extra rules that they had to follow and it seemed really unfair and and uh sylvia said you know well he did this extraordinary thing he brought he brought women in he said they have every right to be there they have every capacity as a man could have for liberation and the woman wasn't happy and then and then Sylvia said, well, you know, he um, really was facing the social stigma of the day, and he, he went as far as he could, and the woman wasn't happy. And then Sylvia said, well, maybe he was right about suffering and wrong about women. And I thought that was such a perfect expression of the spirit of don't believe anything, you know? Take what's good and and leave the rest, which is so empowering. And and I always found that, you know, with, with my teachers, maybe that's why I chose them actually <laughs> to be my teachers, but I always found that. And, and so uh, I was able to use the methods and the, um, the techniques and the, and the kind of understanding of uh, behavior and things like that, that were so revolutionary and important for me and uh, didn't feel like I had to be a, a spokesperson for the rest. That's so
1: important, Sharon. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking back on the many, many decades of my human rights activism. And the the human rights structure is sort of built in this triangular way, right? There's a victim, there's an oppressor, and then there's a remedy or, or a savior to, to make it a little, I mean, it's a little simplistic to frame it like that. But it is kind of set up in this place of, the, and the victim can be an entire marginalized community. The oppressor can be the state, systems, uh, certain groups that are imbued with certain p- kinds of power and privilege. And then, you know, there's an attempt to rectify the violence or the violations of the rights of the marginalized group by the oppressing entity through some kind of, uh remedy, laws, redress, you know, something um, that would make whole, uh, create restitution. And there's a way in which that framework, which really defined my political organizing for many decades, can get us stuck. And what I mean by that that it. Doesn't really allow us to stay with complexity or paradox. It doesn't. It, it can often be a, a framework that really puts us, in, puts, us, puts us into a this versus that, and then we sort of then allocate human beings into one of those three uh, categories. And, you know, can get really self-righteous and the rage that we have then about how we need, ch- need to change the system can be extremely antagonistic. When I got to law school in the early, uh, in the mid 80s, when I got to law school, that was the first time that I encountered the idea of intersectionality, right? Right. So the idea that uh, power and privilege systems intersected with one another in multiple ways and that, you know, we couldn't have these sort of linear understandings of how power and privilege operated in the world. And Kimberly Crenshaw, who was really the author of Intersectionality, was coming at it in a legal context Where there were a bunch of Supreme Court decisions that did not give justice, particularly to black women, because the judges said that you could not prove discrimination was based on race or on sex. And so the intersections of both and how they affected black women were being kind of tossed out of court. When I stepped into really understanding intersectional analysis, it helped me to become more uh, discerning and also more complex in the ways in which I, I understood power and privilege and also paid more attention then to how we were trying to create a different set of outcomes for people who were marginalized in multiple ways. And so I spent many, many decades, you know, I first created an organization called Sakhi for South Asian women that worked with battered South Asian women in New York City. And the way an intersectional perspective came into that was really understanding the ways in which immigrant status created a different set of complexities for battered women, because it was not possible for them to reach out to the police or get to shelters or access the resources that might exist because they could either get deported or there were no language or cultural facilities that gave them the access that they needed for their safety or the safety of their children. Um, And so, you know, for a long time, intersectional analysis became a very important way in which I understood how I did my human rights work. It wasn't until about 10 years ago that I began to feel that intersectional analysis was an important analytical tool for us to understand power and privilege. However, for me to actually step into a dream of the kind of world I wanted to create, there was still something else that I needed to embrace. There was still something else that allowed for a new ground to get created, one which brought us together as humans in a different kind of way, where we understood power and privilege, but then accessed different tools to engage and be with one another. And then another layer that started to emerge very strongly for me was, and what about our relationship to the earth? And all beings, all sentient beings, like where was that analysis or where was that understanding in my own political work or even how I understood uh, myself in relation to other people and the world? That was when my introduction to different contemplative practices, to shamanism and energy medicine, a reconnection to some of the traditions that I grew up with, my studies with uh, Zen Buddhism, and really more, most deeply, I think, connecting to earth-based practices started to transform my political and personal understanding of the relationship between what we needed to do within and what we needed to do without. And that's where my current frame around the world and the ground on which I choose to stand, I try to stand, is that of interconnectedness. And that ground of interconnectedness, Sharon, has been deeply informed by what I have learned from you about loving-kindness meditation. So I just wanted to really honor the seven years that we have taught together and worked together, and how much your teachings have taught me about how to frame my intersectional analysis within this broader framework of interconnectedness.
0: Well, thank you. Actually, when I, I was writing the book, I, I uh you know quote you were talking about intersectionality and, and at the time, the first time I heard you speak about it, I thought that's just like interconnection and uh but that's not where the conversation went as you were explaining what it actually meant you know in that legal framework and then a few years later we were back at omega and you said you know the more i think about intersectionality the more i think about interconnection and i thought i knew it <laughs> and my editor made me take out the, i knew it <laughs> you know it sounded just like too weird but um, i did know it you know so <laughs> It's beautiful, and one listening to you, I realize one of the powerful things I've learned from you um, refers back to something I've often pondered and kind of wrestled with in in especially my teaching, which is that I've seen, and I think science really proves that if one does contemplative practice, there's a kind of good-heartedness that can emerge. It's like um, so many people have said to me, for example. I was out on the street, I was taking a walk, and this person came up and asked me for a dollar, and it's my habit to give them a dollar. And this was the first time I looked that person in the eye and realized that was another human being. You know, and, and so there's a kind of, of generosity of the spirit and good heartedness that I think many, many times comes out of contemplative practice. But what doesn't come is a kind of systems analysis necessarily. You know, it's like, does anybody think why, what's the housing policy of this city? You know, why there's so many people on the street? Um, And, and I think not, you know, I think that's a separate kind of engagement and uh, understanding and even training and how to look. And it comes down to um, sometimes, I use this example in the book too, this, uh, scientist David DeSteno who uh did an experiment which is often used as an example of how mindfulness can bring compassion where he uh had people who had done 8 weeks of meditation practice and then people who had done none and then he told people one by one why don't you come into the lab we're going to do the final bit of research and what they didn't know is that the final bit of research was happening in the waiting room of the lab where There were very few chairs and he'd hired a bunch of actors to sit in most of them who were all on their phones and not paying any attention. And then he'd hired an actor who came in using crutches and looked like they were in terrible pain. So the question was who is more likely to get up and offer their chair to this person who looks like they're in terrible pain. And he found like a resounding difference between the meditators and the non-meditators. And that's why they, um, he came to the conclusion that that mindfulness practice will lead to a kind of compassion and it was considered especially significant because everyone else was on their phone. So you had to be the first one to get up and offer your chair. So I really appreciated that experiment. And then my addendum was, well, did anybody ask why there's so few chairs? You know, like where does this lab use its resources, which they don't, you know, and I really do believe that's uh, its its own kind of effort to see the world in in a bigger way. That's really
1: true, Sharon. And that's why for me, the uh, connection between an intersectional analysis that allows you to really understand how power and privilege and oppression play out at the level of Yourself, interpersonal relationships, um, organizational structures, system structures is so important. For me, interconnectedness, which really is a deep, deep understanding of the incredible interwoven fabric of all of us, of us um, as human beings, of us as one sentient being, one species on this planet of everything on this planet, the elements, that understanding of interconnectedness also comes with accountability. If you understand interconnectedness, then contemplative practice also needs to be about then how do you step into accountability. And, you know, having inhabited um, many contemplative practice communities in the last couple of years, as I have Uh, Begun to study some of these different approaches and also do my own inner work. One of the things that I realized is that it's kind of like I wish my political communities had more contemplative practice orientations and understanding, and I wish my contemplative communities Mm -hmm. had more political understanding and analysis. Because what I often experience in contemplative communities is this is this belief that somehow if you do have a mindfulness practice and are compassionate that, that somehow that's enough, and it mm-hmm. isn't. It's also been the case that in many of the communities that I've been a part of, uh, particularly male founders of those contemplative practices have seriously abused their power. And so that that makes me wonder about, well, What is the level of self-realization that we're talking about? Where is the place of accountability? I mean, many of the same kinds of abuse of power and privilege that are happening in some other domains are also playing out in contemplative communities. So there's no, I mean, there's nothing intrinsic about Uh, contemplative practice, as far as I've come to understand it, that stops abuse of power necessarily, which is why Mm -hmm. the integration of all of this is uh, something that I feel really strongly about. I also feel like this moment, this pandemic moment, is the great unveiling and the great awakening across everything, right? I mean, we're just seeing all of the ways in which whatever it is that we're de- doing, whatever it is that we are doing, needs to be re examined, whether we're in the domain of self inquiry and really working on contemplative practices to do deep healing work within ourselves, or whether we're in the realm of political or economic or external social activity, you know, we're really seeing laid bare all of the Dilemmas and challenges and uh, dimensions that need for us to take another look, to take another step, to take another way of beingness to emerge into perhaps this this new world that this little virus is ushering in.
0: You know, listening to you, especially talk about um, kind of abusive behavior, which is certainly true on the part of many leaders in spiritual communities. I thought of this time I went to see a doctor in New York city who I really liked a lot. And, and she was just asking me, you know, general questions like, how do you deal with stress? And, and I said, well, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. And, and she said, but do you meditate yourself? And I said, Oh, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the point, <laughs> you know, it it's, uh, are you actually doing a practice? Are you living up to what you're espousing, you know? Or has it become like a thing that is just a presentation in the world? So that's what popped into my mind. And it was such a great moment. And what I said to her was, I really like you, you know? Like, that was a great question. Uh, because the role is not the point, you know? It's actually that degree of honesty and sincerity in, in trying to uncover what your experience actually is. So, um, interconnection and bringing together the force of contemplative practice with the wisdom and the dynamism and and the relevance of political activism through the lens of interconnectedness. So can you talk about your initiative, Interconnected?
1: So I'll start really with myself and share a little bit of my journey um, around sort of some of the pivot points for me uh, and how I came to this framing. So about 10 years ago, um, my uh, then husband and I separated. We got divorced and uh, we had been together for two decades, for 20 years And he became involved with our housekeeper, our then housekeeper. They started to have an affair and uh, I didn't know about it because I was busy running around trying to save the world through breakthrough, through the work that I was doing around culture change and changing norms around gender-based violence and immigrant rights and all of those things. And I was so deeply immersed in my work that you know, I wasn't really uh, paying a lot of attention to what was happening in my own home. When all of this uh, came to light and we ended up separating, it was devastating. It was a moment of deep reckoning for me and I found myself on my knees. I mean, I was... uh, Hurt in a way um, that I was actually quite stunned by. I went into a huge amount of guilt, uh, shame. Um, there was a lot of ego stuff involved. You know, there I was, this big human rights advocate out in the world. I had been the opening speaker at the Clinton Global Initiative and spoken at the World Economic Forum and you know, won the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship and won these gazillion awards and was feted and this public figure in the field. And what happened to me, I became this this story, right? Like this story of, well, men can't be with powerful women and men then usually feel emasculated and then men leave said powerful women for women who are not so powerful and then you know it's like this there's this stereotype narrative around well then men go to the nanny or the housekeeper or the secretary or the whatever I mean you know replace it um with sort of whatever that might be in that place and so I, you know, so I was in this place of navigating uh, this narrative that I found myself in the middle of, having such deep shame around all of this. And it would have been very easy for me as a feminist and as a human rights advocate to adopt that narrative and then sort of justify everything that was happening in my life by making him the perpetrator and myself, the victim, right? Like I could have just easily gone into that place. Instead, I found myself perhaps in such a deep place of, um, you know, like prostrate on the ground. I wasn't even just on my knees. I mean, I was horizontal on the ground in just complete, a complete sense of brokenness, and in that moment, as I lay on the ground, it became a moment of sort of getting up and then really looking in the mirror, really turning all of that inquiry and all of that, that place of anger and betrayal and abandonment and all the triggers that this had created in my life and turning it within, And so the the first place of disconnection and rupture that I discovered was within myself. And so the first place of connection, of actually even beginning in the tiniest way to understand interconnectedness was to realize how deeply disconnected I was from myself. And so this journey that I embarked on to um, really reclaim me, all of the different parts of myself that had gotten abandoned, separated from along the way, then made me realize that my internal self was as fragmented as the world around me, that the hierarchies that we had created the power over paradigms, whether it was on the basis of race or sex or gender or ability or class, the economic systems we had created, the education systems we had created, certainly our relationship to the earth, were all deeply, deeply separated. They were all about disconnection. They were all about this rupture where self was you, you didn't even have a self and a self. Everything was other, including yourself. So when I talk about interconnectedness now and, where the, where, and, and the work that I am now doing, one of the pivotal pieces of interconnectedness is first to understand how deeply disassociated really we are from ourselves and from, another, from one another and from our planet. And then beginning the the work, the contemplative work, the practice work, the love work, the loving kindness work of first beginning to heal some of those ruptures within and without, right? To really find where's the connective tissue, where are the places where we can find those connections amongst ourselves And then because I am so deeply committed to an intersectional analysis, finding those places of connection with self, with community, with systems, and with the earth. And so I am now working with um, about 100 leaders of social justice organizations around the world, primarily in the global south. To create a leadership program that is exactly this, that is about how do we build interconnected leadership where our analysis of the rupture of the hierarchies we've been doing in the context of patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, you know, all of the isms for so many decades. How do we hold that analysis while also starting to create the new paradigm, the new place of emergence from where we understand the deep webbing that ties us and all life together. So I've been working with these 100 leaders. I've been leading um, sessions for organizations that work on journalism, on presence, on deep listening, on resilience. Um, I've been working with other organizations on really addressing racial justice. How do we hold places of accountability and go into the rupture from a place of understanding our deep interconnectedness so that we can hold space for accountability and deep healing, even as we shape shift in very painful ways into the new behaviors and practices that allow us To be together on this planet differently—that's the approach. That's the work. That's what I've stepped into now, Sharon.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, I think that actually really is the healing. Because also listening to you, I'm thinking about this book I wrote, uh, "Faith," which came out 18 years ago. And in the process of writing it, I was working with this freelance editor and. And I was saying one day that you know again within the Buddhist context the um the opposite of faith isn't doubt that doubt can be a, a tremendous aid to faith when you question when you wonder when you seek to know the truth for yourself that actually is a, a really powerful aid to faith and by faith I don't mean dogmatic adherence I mean having a sense of being able to offer your heart to something and honoring that gift, knowing that you have a heart. And that's a tremendous gift as you align yourself with some vision. And um, so uh, my friend who was working with me, she said, "If, if doubt is not the enemy of faith, what's the opposite or the enemy of faith? And I said, despair. And part of faith in the way I was using the word was very much about connection connecting to inner resources and strengths within ourselves, and connecting to this sense of belonging on this planet with one another, um, to a bigger picture of life. And so the opposite of despair is really connection. And we certainly are in a time with plenty of despair to go around. That's such a beautiful
1: example, Sharon. Um, You know, the opposite of Faith is despair. And we've certainly created worlds where there is so much despair, where there is such pain, where there is so much trauma, you know, where we've been responsible even as a human species for creating so much pain with the other beings that we share this planet with and with the planet itself. And that despair was certainly uh, deeply embedded in me. One of the most healing pieces of my interconnectedness journey has been to actually build relationship with parts of my inner child, parts of my inner child that literally killed themselves, or this one child that killed herself, that felt such deep despair about the pain that she experienced that she died and that part of me became so deeply disassociated that I have pretty much had amnesia about most of my childhood and it sort of crept into a lot of my adult life and so tapping into that despair and Developing a relationship with this part of myself has been actually some of my deepest practice. Uh, A lot of my contemplative practice training has brought me to actually spending a half an hour every day with this part of myself, with loving attention, with kindness, with presence, and allowing this part of me to speak and enact and articulate the rage and the pain and the grief and just the the sheer despair, Um, which also brings me to thinking about how some of my contemplative practices have been deeply influenced by Tantra. And that's been very important for me because I find that a lot of the spiritual practices that are all about, you know, focusing on just getting calm uh, end up only traumatizing me further or end up becoming like spiritual bypassing or, you know, not really enabling me or others in my community to do the healing that they need. Having the contemplative practice of being able to sit and be present in that way, and then engage my rage and my pain, and all of the things that have fueled my political work for so many decades is allowing me to take that rage and that pain and turn it into life force, affirming energy, faith, if you will, rather than despair. And so even just thinking about the frame that you've just given me, Around faith and despair, Sharon, I think about the dexterity of practice that is required to move between these kinds of polarities that we exist between, Mm -hmm. you know, masculine, feminine, pain, pleasure, uh, faith, despair, if you will. I'm also thinking about what you just said about belonging and, you know, in my somatic coaching training, Mm -hmm one of the things that we hear uh, over and over again is that what humans look for are three basic things, safety, connection or belonging, and a sense of dignity or self-worth. Mm. And if you think about those three pillars and if you think about, say, racial justice in the United States, or even the ways in which patriarchy plays itself out, we've created polarities between safety and belonging. It's not safe to belong because you can be destroyed, you can be hurt, you can be killed, you can be harmed. Your dignity as a human on the planet is constantly being undermined by These constructs that we've created around race or gender or class where you are not even given, you are not even seen as human, you don't even have dignity. So if those three principles are the things that animate as as human beings on the planet, and we're living in relationship to those things almost as polarities, then You know, where does the polarity of life and death come and start playing out in terms of how we live or how we practice? And so I find that for me, contemplative practice has really started to intersect very deeply with rage, with grief, with wrath, with just this this uh, life force that exists around just the outrageousness of what we have done as human beings to one another and to this earth. And I can hold all of that and infuse it with loving kindness, with compassion, with empathy, with a deep, deep, deep commitment to service, to faith, if you will, and that there isn't a contradiction between the two. And I want to speak to that, Sharon, because I find in a lot of contemplative traditions that, uh, you know, we're taught to somehow overcome our rage or transcend it. And I think that it's really important to first honor it, see it, recognize it, uh, really understand all of the ways in which it's allowed so many of us to just simply stay alive in a societal mm-hmm. context that would kill us, that would see us dead. I mean, if I take it to the India context, for example, and I was talking about Hinduism earlier, you know, we have 37 million more men than women in India. And so sometimes when I sort of hear people talking about Hinduism as this uh, nonviolent, you know, the principle of nonviolence or even Buddhism, um, Or the teachings of the Buddha, if you're not going to call these isms, but they have turned into isms, you know, Mm -hmm. in a context where Burma is just, you know, Mm. killing and demonizing the Rohingya in ways that we cannot even fathom, right? Like all of these contradictions that exist within these spaces, that there's a way in which I am learning to hold the essence of the teaching and see how it might be applied while also understanding the deeply destructive ways in which these religions or these faith-based traditions have played out and caused enormous enormous harm have and continue to cause enormous harm so i feel like this is that's some of the reckoning that i am dealing with again from a place of interconnectedness right like this mm-hmm. is not just a this or that how does one learn how to hold polarity and complexity and the this and the that, so that we can be more whole in coming into the creation of what it is, whatever it is that is
0: emerging in these pandemic times? I think that is very beautiful, and I think it's also a sign of maturity. You know, like I remember when I first started practicing, which was 1971, and um. I'm somewhat famous, this was a a Goenka course, it was a 10-day immersion course in meditation, mindfulness meditation, and I'm somewhat famous amongst the people that formed, there's still some of my closest friends that I met in that first retreat for once having marched up to Goenka, looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame, you know, exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him, and it took me a long time to realize that, first of all, I'd been hugely angry and I hadn't seen it. And also that it wasn't something I was trying to cut off, you know, or or reject. But just as you said, to relate to it differently because the fundamental virtue is energy. And and to somehow harness the energy without the the burning and the self-destructiveness and the other things that can happen. When we're lost in it or or overcome by it to such a degree that um, it becomes everything, and maybe that's a combination with um, that sense of dignity, you know, and rightfulness of one's being alive and and being on this earth. Like one of the people I interviewed for the book was a woman who's um, really a leader in New York City in the striking fast food worker movement striking for $15 an hour and the and union, the right to unionize. And and one of the things I really felt from her and other colleagues of hers that I met was this sense of dignity, you know, that uh, even their families would say to them, don't rock the boat, you know, don't do anything. You've got almost nothing and you'll have nothing if you, if you really uh, stand up and and you know demand more and and they just could not do that they could not accept that story about themselves that they were only worth the way they were being treated and and i thought the amount of self respect it takes to go up in those very fearful circumstances and to actually successfully lead a movement was extraordinary and were they fueled by anger of course you know that was part of it but they weren't um somehow just about that you know they were reaching into this this well of the rightfulness of their being and it was it was so awesome and the people who brought us together um were people who friends of mine who never said it would really be helpful to these people if they learned how to meditate they kept saying you should meet these people your community should meet these people these are incredible people
1: you know, you just made me think, I actually have the smile on my face. I was just thinking, imagine if the millions and millions of people that have been and are a part of contemplative communities around the world, right? I mean, just in this moment of the uprising of the pandemic great awakening or what, you know, however we want to call it, the uprising with the movement for black lives and that coinciding with all of the ways in which this little virus has just brought the world to its knees. Mm. Wouldn't it just be so incredible if the worlds of contemplative practice brought all of that incredible energy to really fueling and feeding the emergence of an interconnected paradigm, an interconnected paradigm where we stepped in with courage to do the self-reflection around the ways in which we may have continued to benefit from or abuse power and privilege, to really step into the healing that we need to do within and across communities and create rituals, um, you know, of atonement, of healing, of reconciliation and transformation, of really sort of taking all of the juiciness that exists in in these worlds and infusing this emergence that we are in, um, you know, to usher in this this. This world that we all kind of see and dream about, you know, this dreaming of this new world into being. I, I I can feel it. I mean, I can feel all of these shifts that are happening. And even this conversation with you, Sharon, like just in this moment, I just felt such a surge of these intersecting energies to come together to really infuse interconnectedness as. The reality of all things, you know, it's not like I made up interconnectedness. That is the truth of us, of this world, of this planet, of of the oneness. Um, And, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could move from the rupture paradigm, the hierarchy paradigm, into really remembering, moving past the dismemberment, remembering the interconnectedness of us and all things
0: may it be so that's beautiful and it's part of why i just love being with you because of that uh energy you know and just the exchange and which is not even like a movement back and forth that's maybe a little too dualistic but it's the coming together you know of uh everything. So it's it's wonderful. I'm wondering if um, in closing, which I hate, I hate to do, but we probably have to, if you could lead us in a, a short meditation practice.
1: Thank you. I would love to do that. Um, I've always been a little shy about leading meditation practices with you um, there <laughs> because I've learned so much from you uh, over all of these years, Sharon. And, and you know before I, before I jump into uh, leading the practice, I really just want to say how grateful I am that our paths crossed at that Netroots conference and that we then dove into this incredible synergistic collaboration with Leslie and with Carla and with so many others at the Omega Institute these past years. You have been such an important teacher And I'm very grateful.
0: Thank you so much. And I'm equally grateful to you. So it's it's very beautiful speaking to you again.
1: I'd like to invite you to find a comfortable position. And just settle in with yourself. And bring your attention to your breath. And just feel that air entering your nostrils. Moving through your whole body, nourishing your bloodstream. and the exhale and just stay focused on your breath for a few moments Now bring your attention to any sensations that you might have in your body. Pressure, temperature, any kind of movement. Start with your head and scan down. Just notice nothing to change, nothing to shift yet. Just becoming aware of sensations in our body is such a beautiful relationship to self. And as you move down from your head through your face, your neck, your shoulders, down your arms, your back, your diaphragm, your chest, your belly. Your hips. Noticing as you move through this miraculous body of yours, any sensations. Move down your legs, your muscles, your buttocks, your knees. Down your calves, into your feet. Coming into presence with yourself and notice your length from this place of presence and sensation. Just notice your feet on the ground, your deep connection to the earth as gravity holds you to this planet, extending up through your vertebrae, feel your length, move up, As you sit, as you stand in your dignity, your place of presence, your place of connection to yourself. your dignity, your self-worth. And just feel what it is like to be in your dignity. Do the sensations shift when you claim that for yourself? Just take a couple of deep breaths to anchor into this place of yourself. This incredible body, this incredible being that you are. Just notice from this place of dignity, the dignity of all others in your life, around you, of all of us in the human species. And now the dignity of all other beings on this planet, the ones that are four-legged, that swim, that crawl, that fly, the furred, the finned, the plant beings, the stone beings, the dignity of all beings that we are interconnected with. And just take a couple of breaths into that. And gather up all of that shared interconnected dignity and bring that again within your own. Your dignity connected to that of all that is. I invite you back into yourself, into wakefulness. Thank you for going on this journey with me. I send my love and gratitude.
0: Thank you so much. It's so beautiful. Um, I'm going to replay that over and over again for myself. Thank you, Malika, so much for joining me today. To learn more about Malika's work, you can visit her website at com. Thank you all for joining us. This has been the Real Change series on the Metta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. and May you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.